Hey everybody, this is Sarah Kreger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA. Today our topic is precision BiPAP. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about how I manage BiPAP. And a lot of the reason for that is that when I was an ICU fellow, this study came out. Now this was a study looking at comparing BiPAP to high flow nasal cannula in terms of patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. And what they reported as their findings were that when you look at mortality, high flow nasal cannula is the clear winner and BiPAP is the clear loser. Not only that, not only did high flow look better than BiPAP, BiPAP actually looked worse in terms of mortality than conventional oxygen. I felt very betrayed by this study because I'd been spending a lot of time teaching my residents and medical students about how great BiPAP was. So I spent a bunch of time thinking about what does this study mean? What is it telling me? Have I been assassinating all of my patients by putting them on BiPAP? And it caused me to spend a lot of time thinking about evidence-based medicine in critical care. And the problem to me is that as humans, we like things to be black or white, good, bad, yes, no. So we do studies that ask, what is better, thing A or thing B? We like to declare a winner. The problem with that is that I think which is the winner is probably the wrong question. Because when you're dealing with so many complicated patient factors in critical care, the real question I think is not so much is BiPAP better or worse, the real question is when is BiPAP the right tool? Because there's many tools that we have access to in critical care. And depending on the patient and depending on you, Sometimes BiPAP is the right tool and sometimes it isn't. And I think one of the things this study tells us is that if we're using it as the wrong tool, that makes a big difference. The other issue here is operator dependence. So some things in medicine are not that operator dependent. You know, if you look at the COVID steroid studies, if your study is, let's take a bunch of patients who have more or less the exact same thing, and then, you know, let's give them a single medication. Not a lot about that is operator dependent particularly, but if you're looking at an intervention like BiPAP, where the patient selection, what settings you put them on, and figuring out what to do about it if it's not going well, all those things are very operator dependent. And so I think when you think about all of those things, to me, what this tells me is that BiPAP, good or bad, it depends how you use it. So. What I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how do I approach this in an organized way to make sure that to the best of my ability, I'm using BiPAP in the right way for my patients. And there's really three components of this. The first component is patient selection. I think often what we do for patient selection is just like, oh, patient can't breathe, done. Then the second piece is settings. And for settings, at least what I used to be doing is 10 over five. Everybody gets 10 over five because what other settings are there? That's the only one, right? And then the last one is, if the patient appears to be failing BiPAP, what do we do about it? And my reaction used to be just intubate them, that sounds about right. Um, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I think it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that. So now we're gonna go through each one of these in turn, starting with patient selection. So this has a lot to do with what you consider true BiPAP contraindications. And in my mind, they're fall into soft contraindications and hard contraindications. Now, the first soft contraindication that I hear a lot coming from people when I'm like, let's put this person on BiPAP, is this uncooperative contraindication. Here's the thing. You know what tends to make patients very uncooperative? 
is when they can't breathe and a bunch of people are trying to force them to lay flat on a bed. I wouldn't cooperate with that either. You know what makes them even more uncooperative? When after trying to be forced to lay down on a bed when they really can't breathe, somebody then tries to smother them with a big mask. Yeah, fair enough. So this part, I think it depends how you do it. And often what I'll find with patients is that if the BiPAP actually helps them breathe, if you can get them through that initial period of getting it on them, often they become much more cooperative because now they can breathe. So I have a technique that I use for patients who are panicking, agitated, who are quote uncooperative to get them on it. Uh, what I do is I go talk to the patient and I'm like, look, this intervention I really think will help you breathe. Now, for the first couple minutes, it's going to feel weird. You may not like how it feels, but I need you to give it a chance. So I'm going to stay right here with you. We're going to count to 60 together, and I just want you to give it a chance. Worst case scenario, we can just take it off. The other thing I'll sometimes do at that point is I'll have the patient hold the mask over the face themselves. So I'll start with like some relatively low pressure. Then I'll have the patient, I'll just show them. I'll have them hold the mask over their nose and mouth because that makes them, you know, feel like they have more control, feel less claustrophobic. And often what I'll find at that point is they start pushing the mask onto their face themselves to get a better seal. Because once they realize that, wait a minute, I actually feel better with this BiPAP, then that's what they'll often do. And at that point, I'll say, okay, I'm just going to attach these, you know, head things to secure it so you don't have to keep holding it. So again, what does uncooperative mean? I think we can be a little thoughtful about that. Now, the second, what I consider soft contraindication to BiPAP is this altered mental status thing. Because altered mental status can mean a whole bunch of things. And I hate to break it to everybody, but just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's true. That whole GCS of eight intubate thing, yeah, makes absolutely no sense. Because if that were the case, you know, every time there was a huge college party, everybody would just end up intubated the next day, right? Because GCS of eight has nothing to do necessarily with whether you're protecting your airway. And those two things should not be conflated to be causal. Because, you know, it's absolutely true that it's correlational. Are you more likely to not protect your airway with a GCS of less than eight? Sure, but they're not the same thing. Because I can have a little old lady who recently had a stroke, who's swallowing not so good, whose GCS is 15 to 25, and she's not protecting her airway. On the other hand, you know, I can have a drunk college student come in whose GCS is like six and a half, but who's protecting their airway just fine. So we need to make sure not to conflate these two things. And if the patient's altered but protecting their airway, depending why you think they're altered, BiPAP may be reasonable. For example, if it's a patient with obesity hypoventilation or COPD, and you think they're altered because their CO2 is 100, that might be a great patient for BiPAP. If, on the other hand, you think they're altered because they have a bed head bleed, probably not so much. So trying to distinguish these two things. And obviously, not protecting airway, BiPAP, not fixing your problem. Now, to me, there's another bigger and probably more dangerous time that's a really, truly hard contraindication to BiPAP. And this is what I call gunk in the airway. Now, gunk can include, but is not limited to all kinds of things. Emesis, food, blood, whatever you want. Um, or pus, for example, if you're coughing up all kinds of gross stuff with pneumonia. 
Now, obviously, if you're having massive hematemesis, that is uh, way worse than if you're just coughing up something because of pneumonia. But either way, to me, BiPAP certainly may hurt you, and it's not going to help you probably. Because if your major problem is you're trying to get stuff up and out, not deeper into the lungs, then BiPAP not such a clever idea. And that's one of the contexts in which I think we need to view this study. Because if you read the fine print, what you'll actually find is that over 80% of the patients in this study had pneumonia. So this isn't really a study of BiPAP versus high-flow nasal cannula and acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. It's really a study of, you know, BiPAP versus high-flow nasal cannula in pneumonia. So that's the first part about why I think BiPAP did not work so great in this study. But the second part I think is even more important, which is that BiPAP is a bridge, not a destination. And it shouldn't be thought of or used as a destination, and it's not even a very long bridge. Um, you've got to have a plan what you're doing on the other side. Where are you going? And to me, the other thing about this study is that the minimum BiPAP duration was eight hours a day for two consecutive days. So patients could have been on BiPAP for a straight 48 hours in this study. And to me, that's not really a bridge. So what do I mean when I say a BiPAP bridge? Well, I think you're using it as a bridge to one of three things. One is recovery. Two is a bridge to decision, and three is a bridge to intubation. Now, what do we mean by bridge to recovery? If you think that you can use BiPAP as a bridge to recovery, it means that you believe that whatever the patient has is amenable to some kind of targeted and specific management strategy that has the potential to bring about rapid improvement. So what do we mean by that? Well, volume overload, CHF, and COPD. Those are often the things that are great bridges to recovery. Why? Because unlike something like pneumonia, say, all those things, you have targeted specific interventions and you can expect to get better within a matter potentially of hours, right? You take the volume overload patient, you dialyze them or diurese them, they often get better. CHF patient, get some nitroglycerin, get some Lasix, off you go, and COPD, get some NEBS and some steroids and so forth. And all of us have seen it where these patients can turn around within a matter of hours sometimes in the emergency department. We turn them around, we downgrade them. Okay, when was the last time you downgraded a CHF or COPD or probably maybe during your last couple shifts? When was the last time you turned around a pneumonia patient in the ED? Probably never, right? Because pneumonia patients don't turn around that quickly. It takes time for the antibiotics to work and the lungs to heal. To me, this is one of the reasons why BiPAP, great idea for certain things, but for things like pneumonia, for ARDS, probably not as clever. Two, can you use BiPAP as a bridge to decision? Because sometimes you don't know what's wrong with the patient. It's hard to tell. Is it CHF? Is it COPD? Is it that they had a pneumonia that exacerbated their COPD? Or is it really the pneumonia? What's going on? And so sometimes while you're trying to both figure out what's wrong with the patient and two, see if your initial interventions can turn them around sufficiently, use BiPAP to get you there. And then finally, using it as a bridge to intubation. I do this frequently, um, either because I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure I need to intubate this patient, but let's just, while I'm getting set up for intubation, put them on BiPAP and see what happens but also because it's a way for me to pre-oxygenate and pre-ventilate this patient in order to make intubation safer. Because by recruiting alveoli and improving their oxygenation, so I'm starting out with a better SAT, 
And especially if the patient is acidemic, helping them blow off some of that CO2 so I'm not starting at a pH of 7.1, I'm starting in a much better, safer place for intubation. And it buys me some time before intubation to do the resuscitate before intubate thing. Okay, now we've talked about patient selection. Now let's move on to talking about initial settings. And I'm sorry to inform you that there's nothing magical about 10 over 5. Because here's the thing. Your patient, it turns out, is a special snowflake. Patients are all different. They have different underlying pathophysiology, and they have different responses to treatment and all kinds of things. So in the same way that we would not put every single patient on the exact same vent settings, that would be stupid, right? We don't do that. I try and think about BiPAP settings the same way I think about ventilator settings just on a continuum. So given that, don't start 10 over 5. That's not your first move. Your first move is, what is wrong with my patient? And the easiest way to approach that is, am I having a ventilation failure or an oxygenation failure? Do I have hypercarbic or hypoxemic respiratory failure? Now to translate that into either ventilator or BiPAP settings, this is how I think about it. Your CO2 is determined by your tidal volume and your respiratory rate. Your oxygenation is determined by your PEEP and your FiO2. Now, if you're using a volume control mode, the tidal volume is your independent variable, right? You set a tidal volume. However, you can also use pressure control, where your delta P is your independent variable now. And the amount of pressure that you inflate the lungs with now determines your dependent variable of your tidal volume. Because this way of thinking about ventilators is quite useful when it comes to BiPAP. Because really, all you're doing in BiPAP is translating these settings into BiPAP settings. Here's how the translation worked. Rather than setting a delta P, you set an IPAP. Rather than setting a respiratory rate, you let the patient determine their own respiratory rate. Rather than setting a PEEP, we call it an EPAP. And then, of course, we set an FiO2 as usual. Now, I need to flag a little issue with how we talk about BiPAP settings versus vent settings. Because really, you can think about them the same way. There's just a teeny little nomenclature issue that's important to understand. It is this. BiPAP settings of 15 over 5 are exactly the same as a pressure control setting of a PEEP of 5 and a delta P of 10. What do I mean by that? So if we're setting BiPAP, we set an EPAP of 5, which is straightforward, equivalent to a PEEP of 5. The tricky bit gets with the following. In BiPAP, your settings, your numbers are absolute, meaning if I say 15 over 5, I mean my top pressure is 15, my low pressure is 5. When I'm setting vent settings, on the other hand, I say my PEEP is 5, and rather than giving an absolute number of my top pressure, instead I give a delta, I give a delta P. So, PEEP of 5 plus a delta P of 10 is the same as a BiPAP of 15 over 5. Now, as a further just nomenclature convention, when you're talking about pressure support settings rather than pressure control settings, we just call the delta P a pressure support. Okay, so that's how we translate ventilator settings into BiPAP settings. Now, this is what your BiPAP interface more or less looks like. And just like a ventilator infiltrate, it gives you two different areas. One, this is where you tell the BiPAP machine what you would like to happen. However, after you set your settings, you'll discover that in BiPAP, just as in life, what you want to happen and what's actually happening may not be the same thing. And so that is where it tells you what is actually happening. And there's a couple of useful numbers here. 
The first one is it gives you the patient's respiratory rate. Um, it'll tell you how fast the patient's breathing. Then it'll give you the patient's tidal volume. It'll tell you what tidal volume they're taking for every breath. And then it'll give you an air leak around the mask. So given that, if we have a patient with hypoxemic respiratory failure, how are we going to do their initial settings? Because these patients have an oxygenation problem. So what do we do about that? So this is generally how I do my initial BiPAP settings for hypoxemia. One, I'm like, okay, their problem is oxygenation, not ventilation. What this patient needs to improve is PEEP. So I'll usually start with an EPAP of maybe 8 to 12 in these patients. Then I'm like, okay, I have an EPAP of 12. Now, before I do anything else, I look at the tidal volume they're getting on that EPAP. Because sometimes, just with that EPAP, they're pulling fantastic tidal volumes. They're getting tidal volumes of 500, 600, 700. And if that's the case, do I actually need the IPAP at all? Because all the IPAP is helping them do is take bigger breaths. And often what you'll find, if hypoxemia is their main problem, they actually may not need the IPAP. And all the IPAP is doing is giving them these ginormous breaths, increasing the pressure in the circuit, and often maybe making them more uncomfortable. Because I find anecdotally, sometimes patients find just CPAP without that top pressure. So just the EPAP basically, more comfortable than BiPAP. Now, what about hypercarbic respiratory failure? So what if instead you have a ventilation problem? Okay, here's what I do for initial BiPAP settings for hypercarbia. The first thing is, BiPAP should not have a respiratory rate that is set. You need to be setting patient's respiratory rate at basically none. And often on the BiPAP circuit, you can't set a respiratory rate of zero because it won't let you do that. So I just set it as low as I possibly can um, because you've got to let the patient determine their own respiratory rate. Why? Because let's say the patient suddenly has a syncopal episode or becomes so altered they stop breathing while they're on BiPAP. If you have set a basal respiratory rate, a backup respiratory rate of say 20, you are now functionally bagging that patient at 20 breaths a minute, completely unsupervised. We don't want to do that. So I never set a backup rate. So that's not going to help you. So how do I set my settings for hypercarbia? First, I set an EPAP of about five. Then I set a starting IPAP. And I'll usually start my IPAP at like maybe 10 to 15. Then what I do, is before I leave the bedside, I take a look at what tidal volumes the patient is getting on that IPAP. And then all I do is adjust the IPAP up or down based on a target tidal volume and work of breathing. So I look at the patient. If they're getting tidal volumes of 200 on 10, I'll go up to 12 to 15 until I see them getting adequate tidal volumes. And what you should see if it's offloading their work of breathing, that as they're now getting adequate tidal volumes, their respiratory rate will often go down. Okay, next we are going to talk about troubleshooting. Because what do you do if your patient is failing BiPAP? First, let's take a moment and talk about what failing means. And this comes into a thing we often have trouble with in medicine, which is making the numbers pretty does not necessarily make the patient better. Because our goal is to make the patient better, and often we use numbers as our targets to help make sure that we're doing that. But especially with the lungs, having a perfect oxygen saturation may not actually be making the patient better. Now, 
This is important, especially when we're talking about BiPAP, because for a lot of these patients, they may be chronically hypercarbic. They may have chronic CO2 retention. So one of the very important things we need to do to differentiate making the numbers pretty from making the patient better is know how to calculate a baseline CO2 in a patient with a chronic respiratory acidosis. Because the goal in these patients is not to make their CO2 normal, it's to bring them back to baseline. So how do you calculate that? So here's the rule. For every four the bicarb is elevated above normal, the CO2 is elevated by 10 above normal. Basically what this is saying is that the degree of the patient's respiratory acidosis chronically is reflected in the degree of their compensatory metabolic alkalosis. So how do we apply this rule? Okay, let's say we have the following patient. That's their ABG. Their CO2 is 95, their bicarb is 36. How are we gonna do the math? Fortunately, simple math. We're gonna say 36 minus 24, because 24 is a normal bicarb. All right, 36 minus 24 is 12. Now we're gonna say 12 divided by four, because we said for every four, the bicarb is elevated above normal. Okay, 12 divided by 4 is 3. Now we're going to say 3 times 10, because we're saying for every 10, the CO2 is above normal. So that's 30. And now 30 plus a normal CO2 of 40 is 70. So what this math has just told us is that this patient's baseline CO2 is about 70. So yes, do they have an acute on chronic respiratory acidosis? For sure they do. But, but it's not that bad relative to their baseline. So we shouldn't be trying to correct it down to 40. And if they go on BiPAP and the ABG comes back and the CO2 75, that's not failing BiPAP. That's great, lovely. So the other way that making the numbers pretty and making the patient better are not necessarily the same thing here is that the true goal of BiPAP is actually not contrary to popular belief to make the ABG look pretty. Really, the most important thing we're trying to do here is to decrease work of breathing. Because even if my ABG doesn't look better yet, but the patient is clinically getting better, their work of breathing is decreased, I am comfortable leaving them on the BiPAP and seeing where this goes. Now, what do I mean by work of breathing? I mean, yes, the respiratory rate, but to me, that's not really the most important thing. To me, probably the most important thing is their accessory muscle use. How hard are they working for each breath? That as well as the overall trajectory. Because if they look bad, but they went from looking terribly awful to now just bad, I'm willing to give it a little bit more time, especially because now I have a way of assessing whether they're quote, tiring out, right? Because remember, I can look at the patient's tidal volumes on the BiPAP and see Actually, their tidal volumes are just as good as they were or maybe getting better with decreased accessory muscle use. I feel pretty good about that. Now, if the patient is legit failing BiPAP, the next question is why? Why are they failing? The first thing that you have to say when that's happening is does the patient just need immediate intubation? Because if they do, just intubate them. Don't hesitate if that's really what needs to happen. If that's not the case, the next thing I ask is, is there an air leak around the mask? And if so, can we troubleshoot it? So let's talk about troubleshooting an air leak. What does that look like? Well, the first good news is that it'll tell you, the machine will tell you if there's a significant air leak. I used to go up to the patient and put my head right by the BiPAP mask. And at some point, one of the respiratory therapists was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm listening for an air leak. And they were like, 
you know, you can just look at the BiPAP circuit and it'll tell you. And I was like, oh yeah, I had a better view of the screen from this angle. I mean, it'll just tell you, right? And so significant air leak is greater than maybe 20 to 25. And if you do have a significant air leak, then you can try one of three things, usually in succession. The first thing is just straight up tighten the mask or just reposition it so it's sitting middle of the face. If that doesn't work, then you can always resize the mask because there's small and large ones. And if that doesn't work, you can consider a different type of mask. It's just straight up nasal BiPAP. Or do they need one of those like astronaut helmet BiPAPs that's a full face mask? Now, when do you know if you fixed the leak? Well, you can A, look, did the leak bit better, but also does the tidal volume improve? Because often if you have a big air leak, the volumes are not going into the patient's lungs, they're going out into the atmosphere. Okay, next. Is the patient having an oxygenation failure? Is that the problem? Is that why they're failing? Well, if that's the case, what are we gonna do about it? If this is their problem, how are we gonna troubleshoot hypoxemia? Okay, the first thing I do is, do I have room to increase the EPAP? And you almost always do, because nobody's starting patients on an EPAP of 20, we don't really do that. So almost always you have room to increase the EPAP. Increase the EPAP by whatever you want. I'll go up by two, three, four. I'll kind of see how the patient's doing when it's too much pressure for them. And then after I go up two, three, four on the EPAP, I'll take a look and I'll look at the tidal volume. Why? Because if I go up on the EPAP from let's say 10 to 12 and my stay my IPAP at 15, I don't change it. I've now taken my Delta from five to two or three, right? Because if I go on my EPAP up without going up on my IPAP, I've decreased my delta. Now, if the tidal volume hasn't changed, if the tidal volume is still adequate, okay, that means that my patient doesn't need more delta P, more IPAP than that to get their tidal volumes. Great, fantastic. However, if you notice that your tidal volumes are now inadequate, then the question is, is there room to go up further on the IPAP? Now the maximum value, the maximum IPAP you're gonna want is somewhere in the mid 20s, maybe 25. And it turns out there's a reason for that. The reason for that number is not a random number. The reason that the maximum IPAP I'll do is like about 25 is because the lower esophageal sphincter starts to open at a pressures of above maybe 30 or so. And we really don't want that to happen unless we have a secure airway, which on BiPAP, you know, we don't. So that's what I'll do. And then if the tidal volumes are now inadequate and there's no room to go up on the IPAP, then I'll back off the EPAP just a little bit if I need to. Okay, next, do they have a ventilation failure? Is their problem hypercarbic respiratory failure? And that's what we need to fix. So how am I going about troubleshooting hypercarbia? The first thing to look at is, is the patient's respiratory rate too slow? Because if so, if that's your problem, BiPAP is not the solution. You need to figure out whatever is happening and fix it because BiPAP doesn't help you with a slow respiratory rate. Because as I said, you're basically now bagging the patient without supervision. We don't want to do that. Okay, if the patient's respiratory rate is adequate, the next question is, are the tidal volumes adequate? So go to the BiPAP machine, take a look, and are the tidal volumes, you know, somewhere in this 7-8-ish cc per kilo range? If the answer is no, then is there room to increase the IPAP? Then what you do is you increase the IPAP until the tidal volumes are adequate. Now, sometimes in a COPD, you'll find yourself in the following situation. You go over, their respiratory rate's fine, their tidal volumes are adequate or even more than adequate, 
but they're still really hypercarbic and this is just not getting better. If that is the case and you have adequate tidal volumes, adequate respiratory rate, the next thing that you should try doing is specifically in COPD patients is actually increasing the EPAP. Why? So you know how COPD patients come in and they do that pursed lip breathing thing where they're like, you know that thing they do? Yeah. Why are they doing that? Or why do COPD patients do that, but asthmatics don't? The difference is that COPD airways, they're destroyed, they're floppy, as opposed to say asthma airways, which are inflamed and thick. So these floppy airways, what happens is they collapse at the end of expiration. They literally trap the air. So the CO2 can't get out. Then when they take the next breath, that air is still trapped in there and you start air trapping breast stacking, nothing good happens. So sometimes by going up on the EPAP, what you can do is stent those airways open at the end of expiration, and that's the only thing that'll fix their CO2. Okay, so to review. In order to be thoughtful and careful about who we put on BiPAP, to use it as the best tool we can, you one, want to do thoughtful patient selection, two, individualized settings, and targeted troubleshooting. In terms of thoughtful patient selection, be careful about what soft and hard contraindications really mean, and you've got to think about BiPAP as a bridge, not a destination. In terms of individualization of your settings, you have to think about what kind of problem does my patient have. If it's a ventilation problem, use the IPAP to support their tidal volumes. If it's an oxygenation problem, start by using the EPAP to improve alveolar recruitment. If they're failing BiPAP, what are we gonna do? We're gonna do thoughtful targeted troubleshooting. What does that look like? Well, if the patient just needs to be intubated, just intubate them, don't delay. If you think they don't, then give it some time. The first thing is to check for an air leak. And if that's the case, adjust, resize, switch the mask. If you've done that and they're having an oxygenation problem, then try increasing the EPAP. And if your tidal volumes fall at that point, you may need to also increase the IPAP. And finally, if they're having a ventilation fail, Keep in mind, BiPAP cannot fix a low respiratory rate. If the tidal volumes are low, go up on the IPAP. But if the tidal volumes are okay in a COPD patient, you may need to increase the EPAP. Okay, so that is Precision BiPAP. I hope it was helpful. Take care.